I'd like to welcome you to this session uh, of uh, Hudson Institute conversation about strategy, national strategy. I expect we'll be doing some more of these, particularly since we've had such a such a good response to this one. Um, we have today some. Uh, this is this is actually a very special day for Hudson Institute and even for American foreign policy as a whole, in that we have in one room uh, today uh, one of the great legends uh, of American foreign policy, General Scowcroft, who is also the uh, holder of the uh, Jimmy Doolittle Award, the highest award the Hudson Institute has in its power to to offer. It's now known as the Herman Kahn Award, I should say, and fortunately that change happened before Prime Minister Abe of Japan received the award. I see some of us in the audience are old enough to know what that might mean. Uh, uh, in addition, we have, to General Scowcroft, we have two of, I think, the finest minds in the, the rising generation of scholars and analysts of American foreign policy, Professors Hal Brands and Charles Edel, both of whom have written very important books uh, on the future on American foreign policy history and strategy. And in between, sandwiched between uh, these eminences, we have uh, Professor Elliot Cohen, who again is needs no introduction, is one of the most powerful, significant voices in American foreign policy and perhaps needed now more than ever in a, in a very critical time. So I think we're going to have a, a great discussion and I'd like to invite uh, Professor Cohen to open it with uh, sort of an introduction to his recent book which commits the terrible heresy of saying that hard power may still be important in the future. Who could believe such a thing? Great. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, it's an honor to have General Scowcroft in the audience. He's been um, really an inspiration to several generations of people who both study and, and practice foreign policy and a lot of other old friends. Uh, and I am delighted, if uh, somewhat apprehensive, to have my uh, colleagues uh, sitting here to my left, uh, Hal Brands and uh, Charlie Adel, uh, and of course my genial host, uh, uh, Walter Russell Mead. So the book is called uh, The Big Stick. The Limits of Soft Power and the Necessity of Military Force. It, the title at least has the virtue of being unambiguous. <laughs> um, you know, the, the title, of course, comes from Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, famous dictum, Speak Softly and Carry a Big Stick. I, I'd like to remind people where, when he used that expression. It was a speech he gave when he was vice president at a Minnesota state fair. The title of the speech was national duties. And let me just read uh, a sentence from it. He said, we can be certain of one thing, whether we wish it or not, we cannot avoid hereafter having duties to do in the face of other nations. All that we can settle is whether we shall perform those duties well or ill. And one of the reasons why Theodore Roosevelt is so interesting is I do believe he's the first of our presidents at a global conception of the American role. I mean, we're, the United States has always, since colonial times, been plugged into the international system. The idea that it wasn't as absurd. But he really did have a much bigger conception of the American role in the world, uh, which is one of the reasons why he painted the United States Navy's battle fleet white and sent it around the world to let them know that we had just shown up. Uh, 
Two weeks after he gave that speech, uh, President McKinley was uh, shot, or rather, actually, it was four days later he was shot, and then two weeks later, Roosevelt became president. Since that time, uh, the American global role has cost something like 626,000 dead, uh, about twice as many wounded, trillions of dollars in expense. And, of course, we have a military establishment and an intelligence establishment that is literally an order of magnitude larger than anything that Theodore Roosevelt even imagined. And in some ways, the question underneath this all is, well, why? Uh, was it worth it? Is it worth it today? I wrote the book for three reasons. Uh, first, it seemed to me that it would, could be a it could participate in a belated debate. There, there should have been a debate about the American role in the world triggered by the end of the Cold War. And after all, the basic consensus about the need to confront the Soviet Union in a global way, which involved a global uh, military of a kind we had never really had before, uh, sacrifices which we hadn't made in peacetime before, that debate did not happen. And it didn't happen, I think, because first in the 1990s, predominance or hegemony, whatever you want to call it, looked cheap. After all, uh, other people paid for the first Gulf War. Casualties were extremely low. That pattern basically re uh, repeated in the 1990s in Yugoslavia. So the issue didn't really arise. In the early 2000s, of course, you have 9-11 and everything that flowed from that. And I think that absorbed a lot of the energy that would have otherwise gone into a first principles kind of debate. And so now, a quarter of a century later, we are having that debate. Uh, I would argue not under the most favorable circumstances, but, but there it is. And thinking that that was going to be upon us, I wanted to write the book. Secondly, it seemed to me uh, that fr frequently in the kind of public discourse about military power, there is a kind of a false dichotomy between you know, military options and diplomatic options, as if these are really two completely different ways of thinking about foreign policy. In point of fact, military power works together with diplomacy in the service of foreign policy. And, and related to that is it has seemed to me over time, the community of people interested in defense policy has really drifted pretty far apart from the people who think about foreign policy. Uh, there are different kinds of communities concerned about different kinds of things. They publish in different places. I wanted to bring those two back together because that's why we have military power. And the, uh, the third thing is that it seemed to me George W. Bush did not expect to become a wartime president in a different way, neither did Barack Obama, and in yet a different way, neither really has Donald Trump. Yet they have all been wartime commanders in chief. And I believe there's need to sort of think through what does that mean? What, what sorts of considerations should go into the actual use of military power? So that's what the, uh, the book is about. Just very briefly, it is uh, built around um, basically eight chapters. It starts with the question, why the United States? And I try to address as seriously as I can and as respectfully as I can the various arguments that have been advanced for why the United States should not play a global role that involves the use of force. Either that, you know, basically we're in a, uh, despite what it looks like, we're entering a much more peaceful period. That's the Stephen Pinker 
argument or that the United States is simply incompetent to play this role. That's an argument that my friend Andy Bacevich has made, and there are others. Second chapter deals with 15 years of war. What is it that we should learn from our experiences in the war with various Islamist movements in Afghanistan and Iraq? That was a hard chapter to write, and among other things, it involved taking a hard look at the Iraq war, which I favored, and which I concluded in a measured way, I should be very clear, was a mistake. But it does seem to me very important for us to look back as hard as we can on the lessons of those 15 years. There's then a chapter on the American hand. What is, in the sense of a poker hand, what does the United States bring to the challenge of global leadership, not just militarily, but also in terms of other resources? And then four chapters, which are really built around what I consider to be the great strategic challenges that we face. China, what I loosely call the jihadi challenge, because it's not just al-Qaeda. The problem of dangerous states, that is to say states eager to upend at least regional balances of power, so that would be Russia, Iran, North Korea. And then fourthly, the challenge of ungoverned space or the great commons. And when I say ungoverned space and the great commons, I include things like cyberspace and outer space. And then the last chapter is called the logic of hard power. And it has a number of things in it, but among them is my attempt to go after Caspar Weinberger's famous six principles for using military power, which he expressed in a speech at the 1984 at the press club. And I try to show, well, that really isn't going to work, and then I offer my own alternatives. There's a lot more in the book, but I think we want to get to the general discussion. I'll just conclude by saying that, you know, now that the Obama administration is over, I've found myself reflecting a lot on it. And I was quite critical of the Obama administration, and I remain critical of it. But I certainly give President Obama credit for being sincere in both wishing and expecting to completely finish off the Iraq war, which he had opposed to begin with, and the Afghan war, and actually pretty much terminate the conflict with al-Qaeda, aside from some mopping up here and there, and more generally to retrench from the use of force. I think those were his objectives, and he thought he could do them, and I believe he was entirely sincere. And yet, you know, when we look back on the Obama administration, what do we have? He launched the third Iraq war, because that's what we're engaged in now. He doubled down in Afghanistan, and that is not over. He presided over the largest campaign of assassination, or if you prefer, targeted killing, that has ever been waged by a state, and which still is clearly not, we killed Osama bin Laden, we didn't even kill off al-Qaeda, let alone other movements. Engaged in a war in Libya, in ways that I don't think many of us would have expected, in a way that created more turmoil. Reintroduced substantial American military forces into Europe, confronting possible Russian aggression there, and ordered the United States Navy to begin sailing pretty close to a bunch of man-made Chinese islands in the South China Sea. And I think it's worth reflecting on that fact, not because 
you know, it is necessarily implies a criticism of the Obama administration, though it may, but, but rather it tells you something about the logic of the world that he found himself in and that we find, him, find ourselves in. And so I'll just conclude by saying I agree with Theodore Roosevelt. Um, those duties are going to be out there. We will end up uh, performing them, and the choice is really, as Theodore Roosevelt put it, are we going to do them well or are we going to do them poorly? Are we going to do them with a minimum of bloodshed and expense? Are we going to do them belatedly, uh, messily, and bloodily? Well, thank you for that, Elliot. It's a, a brilliant discussion of a very rich book. Um, uh, I had the happiness to to read it in order to review it in the Wall Street Journal, and it's difficult to do justice to everything that is in that book in a, in a short space, but you did a pretty good job just now. Um, let me just say at this moment, we do have a couple of chairs down front if there are people standing in the back who would like to take a seat. I see one, two, three, maybe four seats on this side. If you want to stand up, that's fine, but they're there. Okay. Um, well, let's, before we, we dig into a particular area of controversy between Elliot and uh, 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 some of our other panelists, what, Charlie, what were your, what was your kind of, what, what did you think was the single most valuable thing you saw in Elliot's book? Uh, well, the thing that Elliot hasn't discussed and you didn't give justice to is you can learn a lot about how someone thinks by what they're reading, right? What is on Eliot's night shelf? And if you read uh, this book, you'll know that he reads John Updike, uh, Graham Greene, Tom Wolfe, and Maurice Druon. And for those of you who don't know the final, uh, this is the inspiration for George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. but it's much bloodier. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, the thing that struck me uh, most before a couple of comments on the book uh, was if there was anything, even though uh, Eliot was very even-handed right now on his assessment or his presentation of his assessment of the Obama administration that clearly ticked you off more than anything else was the removal of the Churchill bust from the oh, local yeah. office. Uh, the book is framed uh, by Churchill speeches at the beginning and at the end, but it's actually not really um, a useful framing of the book uh, because it's really more Lincolnian. Uh, and by that sense, you know, famously in 1858, when Abraham Lincoln is debating Stephen Douglas, and he makes a seeming misstep and error, his political advisors have their hair on fire, uh, and Lincoln comes and down and he says, I'm after much larger game. And I think it's really important when you approach this book, even with the title that's laid out, this is not, or it's a misreading of the book, as I think Elliot just laid out, to understand it says simply an argument for the use of and thinking through under what conditions military force should be used. As Elliot just laid out, this is a much larger argument about the role that the United States should play in the world, a much deeper and engaged role, and situates itself right in the middle of what is erupting to be an enormous debate right now. Uh, so a couple of, uh, if I may, three thoughts that this kind of engendered and then three questions uh, either for Elliot or that we can kind of shove aside later. Uh, so the first thought is uh, I imagine for most people uh, watching this presidential campaign, watching uh, this presidency thus far, um, what Donald Trump said as a candidate, if you have no historical consciousness, 
if you have no historical memory, is not crazy. It's just vulgar. <laughs> Think about this for a second, right? Because if you were to explain to someone who doesn't understand well and viscerally through lived experience the history of the 20th century, why is it that the United States is forward positioned around the world? Why is it that we have an extensive system of alliances? Why is it that we have open markets, open commerce with our allies, at times of which have not been fully beneficial to us in a straight up and up line? Well, there are really good historical answers for this. But again, if you erase that memory or if it begins to recede into the haze of memory, it makes much less sense. And so one thing that I, I've noticed now, having been a transplant into Washington, uh, the most overused phrase in the world is one variant or another of the liberal international order, the rules-based order, the Washington-led order, the post-world order, which I think is very little purchasing ability once you get outside of Washington, uh, both where it comes from, what it means, what happens when it goes away. Uh, and so one of the things that really struck me from this book is this book is absolutely an argument uh, for what that is, how to employ it, particularly with the use of hard power. What the book is not, though, or at least it's a contribution, is how you build a domestic, domestic political consensus to utilize that. Now, the book is obviously a contribution in that line, but how is it that you can build, in a very different setting, a enduring bipartisan consensus to use American power in the world. Um, I should say that you know the parallels, Elliot talked about the 1980s. Uh, there are great parallels when you think about the 1930s, too. Right? There, was multiple, there were multiple pressure groups arguing for sustained American engagement in the world, particularly as the international environment darkened. Uh, the punchline, of course, is that none of them really have any impact until Pearl Harbor, right? when the politics catch up with the policy. Uh, second thought uh, of the book is, uh, I, I really like this. Elliot um, uses the term, I mean, uh, strategic pixie dust and strategic silliness. And they're actually two different concepts, as I understood them in the book. Uh, so one is, I think this is a pretty good argument. You talked about that we fast-forwarded through the argument that maybe we should have had about first uh, principle questions in the 1990s. But we can also say that our strategic muscle memory has atrophied. Right? And there are things that we don't think very hard about that we used to think hard about all the time. And let me kind of let me call out three that I think the book really highlighted in important ways. One, deterrence. Right? Uh, you can say deterrence a lot, but understanding both intentions and capabilities uh, and signaling the willingness to use force and having the right force in place matters enormously. And just saying that we're going to deter an adversary or a competitor without those two elements in place cannot happen. Uh, second one, uh, spheres of influence. It's a concept that we talk about a lot, but I think is maybe less understood in the political discourse now than it was about what happens and why it is such a threat to American, not to global order, but to American security and prosperity when you begin to have spheres of interest in regional hegemons. Uh, the third one, and you take this on really in the first chapter when you're talking about uh, strategic fallacies, I think. This is really a realist argument in a certain degree, is this idea that there is a natural balance of power that exists in the world. That if that natural balance is upset organically, 
States will understand that someone has disturbed this. They will band together, and there might be some violence, but eventually we'll get back to stasis. Uh, and this idea that there's no such thing as natural orders, right? And without leadership, without determination, uh, allies will probably not naturally do things. Uh, third point that I would just uh, that I pulled from the book is uh, I know that a, a long time ago, Elliot, you taught up in uh, Newport at the Naval War College. Um, <clears throat> I'm about to go back to teaching up there. And my favorite case study that I teach there, I don't know if you taught this when you were there, is um, as I tell the officers, it's the only case study without a major war. It's Great Britain between the wars in the interwar period. <clears throat> the punchline, uh, as I tell them before they even start reading, is what makes sense in 1919 from London's point of view, what makes sense in the 1920s and even has to happen, makes less and less sense in the 1930s. And of course, if you're looking at assessing and reassessing the international environment that you're in, as competitors grow their power, uh, this only this reevaluation and this entire book is really an exercise in assessment, right? A net assessment of our strengths, other strengths. Uh, how do you get to a fundamental reassessment without there being a really big bang, right? A really big strategic surprise that realigns us. Because that is, I think, the critical question that we have. Uh, three questions I'd throw out for you that you can take up or not. Uh, first is, uh, in the book, uh, you said, and I'm not sure which parts of the book were drafted at what point, Elliot, uh, but uh, this sentence, this paragraph, I take it, it happened during the GOP primary, uh, that Trump uh, presents a coherent, um, if not majoritarian, viewpoint uh, that combines isolationism and belligerence. And I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about how coherent that is and its implications. I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek. That's a serious question. Uh, second one, we're doing a net assessment of American strengths, right, the American hand. Uh, Elliot, drawing on Clausewitz, says, look, when we count American strengths, there are things that we can count, but there are a lot of things that you can't count that are intangible. And part of this is America's sense of social cohesion. Our belief in our government, our style of government, uh, the fact that we have an open door to innovative immigrants. And uh, my question is an obvious one, but do you still believe that? And is it still a strength? And what will get us to it being a strength again? Uh, final question I just throw out is, Elliot says that in some ways the United States is the most unpredictable of powers, right? Because we believe things. We don't just play realpolitik. And that unsettles the world. So the question is, if the United States, like I think you can say that being more unpredictable in certain situations is a good thing, right? Tactically, it can be a very good thing. But for a president who has said that he wants to be less predictable as a style, you can't only communicate with one player at a time. So what might be actually very good tactically and what might be very good vis-a-vis -vis certain competitors is also communicated to our allies and partners. Uh, and I guess this is not a critique, this is not intended as a critique of the White House, but rather if we go back and forth as you lay out between strength and weakness, uh, between being engaged and pulling back, uh, somewhat up and down, even over the past 70 years that we're drawing from, 
Is that likely to change? And what does unpredictability, when we become the most unpredictable factor in world politics, how does that change things? All right. All right, Hal. So my comments actually track fairly closely with Charlie's. Uh, and the book raised three or four issues for me, all of them clustered around this question of, do we have enough today? Because uh, I think that's one of the, the motivating questions of the book. If, if hard power is critically important to American statecraft, American security, and international order, do we actually have enough today? Uh, and so there were four things, I suppose, that, that occurred to me in this context. And so the first is, this odd duality of the American position today. Because in, in Eliot's chapter on what he calls the American hand, I think he does a wonderful job of outlining uh, the extensive US military lead, particularly in global power projection capabilities, which won't be matched for decades, even if then, all of the economic and social factors that underpin American strength, and the fact that over the long term, the United States actually probably has an edge over uh, most any of the competitors you can think of. And so in, in a global overall net assessment sense, I think you would say uh, that you might be fairly optimistic about where the United States is heading. But the duality is that when you look at the picture in regional settings, which is really where the rubber hits the road geopolitically these days, the situation is is much direr. And in fact, it's it's getting considerably worse in many cases. So uh, in East Asia, the military balance in the Taiwan Strait looks fundamentally different today than it did 20 years ago. And I think there are real uh, questions about whether the United States could actually effectively defend Taiwan in a crisis. If you project out another five to 10 years, I think there are real questions about how much the United States could do in a number of contingencies in East Asia. Uh, if you look at Eastern Europe, the United States and NATO are only beginning to grapple with what it would actually take to defend the Baltic states in a crisis. Uh, and, and so on the one hand, you have a country that has immense global leads. On the other hand, you have a, have a country that is going to have increasing difficulty, I think, sustaining its regional commitments uh, over time. Uh, and that gets to a second point, which is this question of strategic solvency. Uh, the question of whether the United States actually today has sufficient military power to make good on its international commitments. Uh, and the reason this has become a pressing issue is that over the past a number of years, we've seen two trends heading in opposite directions. So on the one hand, the international environment has become considerably more threatening, uh, both with respect to the sort of threats that we're used to in the post-Cold War era, so jihadist terrorism, uh, ungoverned spaces, that sort of thing, but also with respect to great power competition, uh, which is back in multiple regions. But at the same time, the level of US military power in an absolute sense has been declining fairly rapidly. In fact, in, in percentage terms, we have just had the uh, steepest disinvestment in defense that we have had since the end of the Korean War. Uh, and so the, there is a question about at, at what point do these trends become uh, irreconcilable? At what point do we become unable to actually make good on the commitments we have? And this ties back into the first point. I think that point is actually much closer. We're much closer to that point today uh, than we might like to think. Uh, and that gets to a third point, which I think ties in with something that, that Charlie mentioned, which is that the United States has gone through these cycles of ambition and retrenchment numerous times before, during the post-war period and, and even before that. And at some point, something always happens that sort of snaps us out of the funk that we've been 
in after the prior conflict and wakes us up to the fact that there are still responsibilities we have to take care of in the world and that there is a bare minimum of military power that is needed to that. The, the problem is the, thing, the, the things that wake us up usually tend to be disasters, whether that is uh, the outbreak of World War II and then Pearl Harbor, whether that's the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. And so the, so the question for the United States has always been, and I think continues to be today, can we get back onto a better trajectory without the disaster happening, or do we have to wait for the next disaster in order for that to happen? Uh, and then that, that brings me to the fourth question, uh, which, and, and I know, Elliot, you would, you would fundamentally agree with this, so I don't mean this as a critique of the book, but uh, as important as military power is to upholding American foreign policy and the international order, it's, it's clearly not enough. And that has become increasingly evident today, I think, because you can sketch out a scenario where four to eight years from now, the United States is actually significantly stronger in a narrow military sense because we have once again opened the floodgates uh, on military spending. If not opened the floodgates, at least gotten some, some decent marginal increases. But in this scenario, we might still be weaker in an aggregate sense than we were before because we will have alienated our allies, we will have isolated ourselves from international public opinion, we will have torn up free trade deals which constitute uh, an important part of this international order that we are committed to, to defending. And so we'll come out worse off than we were before. And so I would just say, uh, when I read the book, my, my reaction uh, when I came to the end was, yes, absolutely, yes to hard power, yes to the big stick, but yes to all of the other things that have traditionally made the United States a great superpower as well. All right, well, I hope uh, after this you guys can see why I think we're in the presence of three of the most luminous and interesting minds in in American foreign policy today and how much we how much we should be glad that a, a new generation of thinkers is coming along that that has the sort of capacity and balance to to look at these important truths that many of us were afraid would be lost in a new generation and to articulate them in our current circumstance but having said all that Elliot you want to defend yourself quickly well um I was afraid of much worse. Uh, oh, it's coming, I think. I'm We've sure it still is. Got... Uh, first, you know, I, in all sincerity, I completely agree with what you said. It's, uh, you know, we're both at that stage where you begin looking behind you and say, is there anybody back there? And uh, there really is. And that, it, that is actually a very important thing. Um, Did you tell me that you've been teaching uh, Shakespeare? Yes. So what type of person behind you are you looking at? Are we thinking well, <laughs> are we a Caesar or are we... <laughs> Uh, no, right. I don't want to go down that road uh, right now. Um, look, I thought those were very insightful uh, sets of, of remarks, particularly the compliments. Um, <laughs> let me just start with your first uh, question, Charlie. I think, uh, you know, I, I did make these two passing uh, references to Trump, and I, and I did use the words isolation and belligerence. I just double-checked. Um, and in a way, to the to the given topic that we're supposed to discuss, I think those are instincts, not doctrine, not even a concept. It's just who he is. I think so much of there, there are elements of Trump that are semi consistent, but in this case, I think these are just impulses. Uh, so I'll, I mean, well, I'm sure we'll go more deeply into it, into the shallows of uh, Trump's foreign policy thinking, but. 
Th that's really how I would how I would portray them. Uh, you know, you raise a very good issue about American Americans' strengths. I, like a lot of people, I have been somewhat shaken, uh, not just by the election, but by some of the things that have followed. I mean, I do think, uh, putting, I mean, as I'm sure people here realize, I have not been the greatest admirer of uh, Mr. Trump uh, for quite a while. Um, at the end of the day, I will still bet on those fundamental American strengths. You know, when I look at what the reaction was to that extremely ill-advised, incompetently executed executive order, the kind of outrage and the pushback, which did not just come from the left, um, was reassuring. Uh, and I think you're, I would guess, I'm inclined to think that we're more likely to get incoherence, infighting, pushback, uh, some disturbing stuff, than dystopia, as per, say, David Frum's article in the latest issue of The Atlantic. And the reason why is, I think, because of the nature of the United States. And indeed, I even think in the long run we may very well come out stronger for all this. I really do. I think there are a lot of young people who are thinking about politics in ways that they did not think about politics before. We are raising, we are raising first order issues about what does it mean to be an American, uh, about what are the things that underpin uh, our system of government, what is the value of our system of government, what does the rule of law mean. So I, I actually I remain a long-term optimist. On unpredictability, I think there's a distinction between the fact that the United States can be unpredictable and a leader choosing to be unpredictable as a technique. Even Nixon, who, of course, is, you know, famous for having uh, coined that, was actually did less of that than people think. You know, his so-called madman mad theory was less so. This guy is different. I think he is genuinely, because of the nature of his temperament, he is genuinely prone to flying off the handle. Uh, Nixon, I think, much less so. You know, Nixon would have calculated before he did something unpredictable, if, if that makes any sense. Uh, but but I, I I mean a lot of this does get to my very fundamental judgment that this is a different kind of personality as president than any we've seen before. So to uh, to house uh, questions, um, and again you know I, I basically take the premises of all of them. You know when I say the American hand, basically you know you can have a really good hand, but first it depends how you play the hand, and secondly it depends on everybody else's hand. And I think you're right to say other people's hands are getting better. At the end of the day, I tend to think that, you know, the basic inventiveness of American industry and American military leadership is such that you can actually recover a lot of that regional edge. But I agree with you, it is something to be very concerned about. There is a bit of a danger, I think, for those of us in the defense world that we get, you know, we get very focused on the quality of somebody's cruise missiles. Uh, and, you know, what they can do to kind of keep you out. And that's important, but at the end of the day, if you're looking at real military conflict, there are a lot of other things that come into play as well. Um, to the strategic solvency part, I think you're right. One of the things that concerns me is that if we believe the president, he wants a massive infrastructure spending program, he wants very substantial tax cuts, and he wants a military buildup. I don't understand how that works. 
Uh, and I certainly don't understand how it works without really massive deficit spending, which to the extent that the Republicans are still a conservative party, which is open to debate, um, you know, serious conservatives should, will object to. And some clearly will. And there will be an element of the Congress which will say, no, we believe in some kind of fiscal responsibility. You know, the easiest thing to go in all that is military spending. There are going to be a lot more votes in bridges and airports and roads uh, and a lot more support for tax cuts than there will be for buying more F-35s or more uh, submarines. Um, in terms of expansion retrenchment, unfortunately, I think, yes, disaster. So one of the things that I fear most about this administration is they could end up getting a bunch of uh, American kids killed unnecessarily. Um, and a, or it may be a nonviolent disaster. It could be, you know, blowing up some important elements of the international trade system. It could be, you know, losing an important alliance set, um, that kind of thing. Finally, how to the, uh, you know, is there a danger the United States could be stronger militarily but weaker in four to eight years? Yes, I think that's right. And particularly the, the heart of that that troubles me most is I think the, the president radically underestimates the importance of our alliance system. You know, if you were to ask me what is, other than you know, the fundamental nature of the country, what is our most important asset? It is our alliance system. And what I think most presidents understand is you need to, even when you get annoyed at your allies, as, uh, I forget whether it was Churchill, who's, or maybe it was, actually it was uh, Field Marshal Slim who said, you know, the only thing worse than fighting war with allies is fighting war without allies. Um, he really seems not to get that. Now, the good news, I think, is in a very peculiar way, he's surrounded himself with advisors and cabinet secretaries and now a national security advisor who do get all that. And what we don't know is whether, you know, that cast of characters that he has around him will sort of tamp down some of his worst instincts and reflexes and those of some of his advisors, uh, or whether he'll just sort of blast through those. For sure, though, and with this I'll, I'll, I'll stop, Walter, because in a way it's a response to what we were talking about earlier, you know, you could have an enormous amount of policy energy diffused into just cleaning up the messes made by the president's tweets. You know, going, I mean, you think about it, General Mattis having to go around saying, no, we're not, actually, we're not planning on stealing your oil. Uh, no, actually, we, we do believe in the North Atlantic Treaty. I mean, there's, and it's not just one statement like that. You have to go around and sort of hold people's hands and, you know, try to, try to soothe them and reassure them and all that sort of stuff. The, the difficulty is, if, if this were, I don't know, a Jeb Bush administration or a Hillary Clinton administration, we would be sitting around in a um, setting like this talking about how incredibly difficult the world is and the enormous and complex challenges of American foreign and defense policy in addressing all that. But instead, we're talking about to what extent are we going to be able to tread water? And that's not really a good, a good place to be in. All right. Well, I, uh, by the way, I, in, in my own mind, I, I sort of have divided the political world into three groups on their attitudes toward Trump. One is um, 
you know, the never-Trumpers or the dumpers. They just want him gone. Then there is the never, uh, then there's the ever-Trumpers who just think he's terrific and he's, he's attacked by enemies who don't love our America. And then what I think of is the pinafore Trumpers. That is what never? Well, hardly ever. And, uh, uh, I think we've seen an increase in the Pentafor Trumpers since uh, since January 20th, uh, but maybe a hardening of, of lines elsewhere. What I'd like to do now is to throw a small apple of discord into this um, uh, meeting of the like-minded, because uh, one of the interesting things in Elliot Cohen's, Cohen's book is short but quite striking for those of us who think about stopping. He says that one of the worst things you can do is use the phrase grand strategy, that, that grand strategy is a strategic mistake. Now, both, uh, both uh, Professor Zidell and Brands have, have thought a good deal about grand strategy and, and tend to like the idea. So I thought it would be both instructive and illuminating for Elliot to tell us why they're stupid. <laughs> and <laughs> Just as long as we get to return, right? Them. And then, right, and and then for them to explain why he should just shut up. So if we could uh, go into this phase, and then then we'll talk about something amiable like President Trump's foreign policy. But that's really nice of you, Walter. Thank you. Uh, so I'm stuck with uh, two considerably younger and more agile uh, adversaries here. Um, so I do, I do take a swipe at the idea of uh, grand strategy, despite the fact that these gentlemen have written excellent books on the subject, uh, for, for a number of reasons. And I think, of course, the first thing I would say is part of what we may be dealing with here are semantic differences. Um, I think sometimes we may be talking about the same thing. I prefer the word policy, and they may prefer the words grand strategy. And uh, as a writer, I'm Maybe it's having reread Strunk and White too many times, I believe. You know, if you have a choice between two words and one word, go for one word. And if you have uh, an opportunity to get rid of an adjective or an adverb, particularly one like grand, kill it. Uh, so stick with policy. I mean, I, and look, the serious point is, you know, does the United States have sort of macro conceptions of what it wants to do in the world? Of course. You know, think, you think about NATO, you think about, maintaining a uh, some sort of confederation of European states that are liberal democratic, that are out of the Russian or Soviet orbit. Well, of course, that's that's the policy of the United States. Um, you know, that the policy of the United States is we want a Japan that is allied with us, that doesn't feel it has to go nuclear, uh, and that is part of the world order. Yeah, sure. And, and I could go on and on. What, what troubles me about the idea of grand strategy, other than the sort of aesthetic element, is, uh, I would say, two things. One is that, uh, at least as it was originally conceived, beginning with a man named Edward Mead Earl um, in the early phases of World War II, it's a sort of an architectonic concept of the integration of the many different elements of national strength in a very kind of hierarchical way. And I may be just suffering from having periodically lectured at institutions less august than the Naval War College, which, is, uh, which I spent four wonderful years at, um, where the officers are really you know, kind of taught that this is the way the world ought to work. You know, you have vital interests, you have national interests, you turn it into a grand strategy, and you decompose it in an orderly fashion. I just don't believe that works. Uh, I don't think that's possible. 
and I may have been contaminated here by having served in government, as have these gentlemen, uh, that I just, I just don't see it. I mean, I don't see grand strategies being written, and I certainly don't see them being implemented. And that brings me to the second point, which is, right, so maybe actually there are three points. The second point is, you know, ideas are really important in foreign policy. And as a professor, of course, I love ideas. That's why I do what I do. But the sad realization I come to is that the ideas are critical. They're absolutely essential. But 95% of foreign policy has to do with implementation and with particular circumstances and adjusting to particular circumstances. And things can go either way. So if you take like something like the Iraq War, you know, if it had been done in a different way, I don't think we'd be having the discussions that we're having. Um, and I, I think I, part of it is I, I fear that the obsession with grand strategy will take people away from often what matters a lot more, which is how business actually gets done. And the third thing does, does go to the issue of unpredictability. You know, I, I am very much taken by Charlie's reference to Britain in the 20s and 30s where um, strategic concepts and policy concepts that did make perfect sense in the early 20s, uh, say the commitment to Singapore, which is a case that I, I teach my own uh, students, made zero sense by the time you get to the late 30s. And I do think we're in a much more, potentially a much more chaotic, unpredictable world than we've been for quite a long time. I really do think we're... We're in the rapids, uh, and that puts a premium not on sort of big concepts of how you know the river flows, as opposed to paddling like crazy and avoiding the rocks. All right. I'll take this one. Al, you want to go first here? I think to some degree this is simply a semantic difference, although the semantics are important mainly for fundraising purposes. Uh, <laughs> If you think of grand strategy as some sort of plan or blueprint that allows you to seamlessly navigate international affairs, then it's quite right that grand strategy never has existed and never will exist. Um, if you think of it as just a set of guiding principles and priorities that provide a little bit of structure in how you deal with a messy world and actually give some coherence even to your responses to the un unanticipated, then I think grand strategy does exist and there are countless historical examples of that. Uh, we could talk a little bit about sort of perhaps the Obama administration's grand strategy or the Trump administration's uh, worldview or, or whatever you have it. But, but I would also just simply say that I think having that sort of worldview, that sort of coherence is actually essential to making decisions about the subject of this book, about the use of, of military force. So I think, you know, without a framework like this, you really can't make intelligent decisions about what capabilities to buy, how to... Allocate, allocate finite resources again across competing priorities, uh, what circumstances are important enough to use force, and, and so on and so forth. And so you can call it uh, policy, as Elliot prefers. You can call it strategy. You can call it grand strategy. But if you don't have some overarching intellectual framework guiding how you uh, deal with the world and how you make specific policy choices, you're, you're driving in the dark. And where I think I would disagree on substantive instead of uh, semantic grounds, I would actually say that I think it's, it's more important today to have this sort of overarching intellectual framework, precisely because we are dealing with 
a broader number of threats. There is greater uncertainty about what the United States can and can't accomplish. The world is getting messier. And so I think the penalty for not doing that sort of intellectual legwork is actually higher. Uh, if you look at the Obama administration, for instance, uh, you know, I, I don't think people are going to be studying the 2010 or 2015 national security strategies as great grand strategic documents 20 or 30 years from now. But I think you absolutely can look at sort of the sum total of the Obama administration's both stated views on foreign policy and then its actual policies, and you can discern some broad overarching ideas and patterns. Uh, the idea that we want to maintain the rules-based order or the liberal order or American primacy or whatever you want to call it, but we want to do it uh, more cheaply when it comes to the use of military force, uh, that we want to place a greater degree of emphasis on diplomacy, particularly with American rivals and adversaries, and that we want to reweight American policy geographically. I think these are this is basically the code that helps you unlock Obama's foreign policy. And if you understand that these are the basic ideas that the administration had, it explains not everything that the administration did over eight years, but probably 80% of what the administration did on a range of specific issues. So, uh, you know, I, there may be sort of more heat and light in this discussion because we may simply be quarreling about what you call a certain conception of what the United States ought to do in the world. But, but I do think there is a value to grand strategy, particularly in a time like this. Uh, yeah, just a couple of thoughts. Uh, having taught uh, strategy uh, for a while, having written on strategy, and then getting to experience uh, strategy such as it is here, uh, I decided that it would be a useful exercise to keep a running list of uh, how I heard strategy described to me uh, in Washington. Uh, so this probably plays to uh, Elliot's uh, Point. Uh, so I heard strategy alternatively uh, referred to as listing objectives, uh, saying what you want those objectives to be without thinking how your adversary might respond to them, um, not thinking through resourcing, um, doing something, because not doing something is never an option, or, and this was my favorite one, saying something new. Because there needs to be new thinking. I remember all this. Yes. There, uh, but there were three thoughts that uh, hook in. I think with what Hal was saying, um, that at the very basic, uh, you know, you talked about an intellectual architecture that helps to guide choices and allocate resources, right? But uh, I would say that grand strategy, as I understand it, as I explain it, as I write about it, is that it's very basic, a two-step process. Right, it's conception and execution. Uh, Elliot is entirely right. It has no validity and no utility if you hope that when you come up with this bright, shining, beautiful idea, it will tell you what to do in any given circumstance. That's not helpful and it's not realistic in any way, shape, or form. However, if it's both, as Hal described it, a conception of what those primary interests and objectives are, an ordering and a prioritizing of what threats those are that threaten those interests, a analysis of how you will use limited resources to mitigate those threats to your objectives, and then implementing, implementing, implementing those. That's a new one. Implementing your strategy. Well, I was just, you know, I'm reminded very much that uh, to the bright, shining ideas part, after you know a furious battle that I had had at state, um, 
a paper, uh, you know, version number 300 that I had written of the same thing was finally not killed and was launched uh, within the building and then outside of the building. Uh, and a friend said, congratulations, you've won. And I said, well, what do you mean I've won? I've written a paper. Uh, and he said, well, that's what winning is uh, in this context. And I said, well, that's getting the boulder up to the top. Don't we have to roll it down now? Uh, you know, half of what we're talking about is execution, is follow-up, is if this is our general set of principles, what does it mean to make sure that the bureaucracy is working, is allocating its resources as such? Um, then the final uh, point I would make is reevaluation is part and parcel of this grand strategy or policy, whatever we're calling it right now, idea that never do your objectives or your resources sit in stasis. The world shifts all the time. What we are capable of doing both shifts and we surprise ourselves how it might shift. So just as you might see an increase in how much we are spending discretionarily within the military budget, that might change, and probably pretty soon, you can also see a scaling up or a scaling back of what it is that we do in the world, uh, wisely or unwisely. But part of policy, part of grand strategy, is a constant reevaluation, and I think this has a lot of utility, on scaling up what our objectives are and ought to be. Can, yeah, if I can um, just... In to kind of help us sort of push into yeah. things where we can, you know, rather than haggling about what, what grand strategy actually means, maybe push some of the substantive discussion. So I was going to mention two, uh, first, two readings that have influenced me. I'd be curious, I'm sure you guys have read them too, and I'd be curious to know your take on them. One, which, you know, was a staple of graduate student, uh, graduate education when I was uh, going through that, was Charles Lindblom's The Science of Muddling Through. And this is, goes back, I think, to the late 40s, early 50s. And what Lindblom said is, look, there's a difference between root and branch decision-making. He said he had done a bunch of interviewers of administrators who were all completely impatient with the academic literature on public administration because he said the, the academics all assume that, you know, you lay out your objectives, you lay out alternative courses of action. And that's not the way the real world works. The real world works by making lots of incremental decisions. And I, uh, I think that's quite powerful as applied to foreign policy, too. The actual practice of foreign and defense policy is, I think, mainly branch kind of decision-making. Now, there are great moments in history where all of a sudden you've got to make some root kinds of assumptions. That, in many ways, happened during World War II, not after World War II, as people think, during World War II, when we see ourselves constructing a brand new world order. But for the most part, the business of government ends up being making these marginal uh, choices. The, the other um, work, which uh, Abe Shulsky can correct me on the title, uh, Nathan Leidis's, I think it was the Bolshevik Operational Code. What? The Operational Code of the Politburo. I think, but there, or there may have been two of them, but one, I think one of them was uh, the Bolshevik. But I'll take, I'll take that as a friendly amendment. Uh, the Bolshevik operational code, that it, it's sort of the set of assumptions about how the world works that a coherent group of people have. And I think that's actually a pretty valuable way of thinking about many of these same issues. Part of what's going on now, and in a way this goes to your original point, Charlie, is um, 
people on the four of us up here share the same basic operational code. We have really quite similar conceptions of how the world works, and you know it's significant that you know you have two people who served in the Obama administration, one in George W. Bush. There's really no difference. We may now have a we certainly have a president who doesn't share our operational code, and I think that's a useful way of thinking about it. The, the two um, two other two questions I want to raise. One is, you know, if to the extent you believe in, in grand strategy, um, at, at what level do you expect it? Do you expect an Obama grand strategy, a Trump grand strategy, a George W. Bush grand strategy, or is it more, and I think this is probably the way I would think about it, this is sort of the basic continuities of American foreign policy until you get a disruptive moment. I mean, people would argue, say, you know, let's forget the United States. You know, the, the Brits were always determined you're not going to let somebody else dominate the continent. Okay, and that really, there, yes, there are different variations, whether they're Whigs and Tories and so on, but it's a, it's a constant. I'm not sure that it's helpful to talk about grand strategies if each administration gets to craft one. I don't think it works that way. I think there are these deep underlying continuities which are important. The last thing, uh, the second question I would say is, it, it seems to me the, the important question to ask is not just, you know, what are our objectives, how do we, you know, what, what do we want to do? It's uh, what I call, when I give my students this lecture, uh, the theory of victory. So what is our theory of victory? Why do we think what we're going to do will actually work? Why do we think that uh, the kinds of inputs we're providing yield the kinds of outputs that we want. And that has always seemed to me that in, in thinking sort of big policy thoughts, that to a surprising degree that often gets left behind. You know, there's always a kind of leap of faith that the inputs that we're putting out there will yield the objectives that we want, as opposed to a really kind of careful reasoning through of, well, why exactly do we think that by doing X we can get outcome Y? Step one, put 500,000 troops in South Korea. Step two, question, question, question. Right, right. Step three, profit, right? right. Is the, um, all right, this has been terrific, uh, and our panelists, as I expected, are uh, have a lot to say. But if we're going to give the audience any chance at all to intervene, this is the time. Uh, please wait for someone to come to you with a microphone, and please identify yourself uh, when you speak. The questions should be short, and they should be questions, which is a sentence that would be punctuated by a question mark if it were written. Yes, sir, right here, please, to begin. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Richard Saloya. I work at the National Foreign Trade Council, which should tell you everything you need to know about what I fear. Um, with that said, I'd like you within the, the field – with. In terms of the operational code that everyone has shared up to this point, could you comment on two things? One, in a 10-year time frame, climate events, and two, population growth in the places least able to accommodate it. Okay. Who wants to take that one? It's clearly, that's chapter. I was going to say that's that, that, that's uh, you know Hal is a world-renowned expert on that. Uh, I, I I have to say honestly, uh, I don't really feel omnicompetent, uh, so I'm not sure I can 
I can address that. You know, I suppose my, my basic feeling is humanity has shown itself to be amazingly adaptive and uh, resilient when things move incrementally. And there will be, you know, various adaptations that go along. What we have to worry about is disruptive events and where there are really kind of quantum changes out there. And I don't feel that I know enough. I mean, by, by almost by definition, those are unpredictable. Um, you know, say if you take climate change and pressure on population, that's clearly an issue. I somehow think we'll somehow adjust to that. Um, although in some parts of the world, particularly the Middle East, it's going to just make things uglier and uglier, uh, and there'll be a lot of a lot of human suffering. It's when something really big, big happens. I think. How? I would just say. I mean, I I don't feel particularly competent in either of these areas as well, but I'll concede half of a point to Elliot here by saying that uh, these are perfect examples of issues that make grand strategy or policy very hard to do because you look 20, 30, 100 years down the road and it's quite clear, seems quite clear that there are, these are very big issues that are kind of come whack us over the head at some point. And so you would expect that a good grand strategy would look down the road and say, okay, grand strategy is all about the long term. What do we do in order to get our arms around these problems uh, looking forward? But, but the issue is that in the near term, the costs of dealing with these problems, particularly climate change, tend to be more severe than the costs of not dealing with them. And so the tendency is to simply muddle through, is to keep kicking the can down and down and down the road. And one area where I think I would give the Obama administration a great deal of credit is, is for actually trying to get ahead of the curve on some of these issues with mixed success, but, but actually taking some action to deal with threats that they could be quite severe over the long term. But I think the mixed success itself demonstrates how hard it is to, to deal with these things. If I could just make one other comment about because I think it deals with the operational code issue that's been raised a couple times. I think you're fundamentally right in pointing out that there are a, a series of baseline assumptions that we all share and that the U.S. foreign policy community as a whole broadly shares about the way the world works. Uh, and this is everything from the idea that you know, the spread of democracy is a good thing that is likely to continue to American military primacy can be sustained indefinitely. And right now, the, the world is testing all of these assumptions more fundamentally than at any time since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and, and just before the election, uh, a colleague and I did a paper that teed up a number of these assumptions and sort of looked at the extent to which they were all being challenged. The one uber assumption that we did not think to question was the idea that the international order that the United States has sustained over the past 70 years is a good thing. Because it did not occur to us that we might have a president who might think differently about that. But, but that, I would say that is now the fundamental grand strategic assumption that is up for debate in a way that it has not been in many, many years. Can I just add one uh, peripheral point to this uh, on the demographics issue, uh, which actually isn't your question, but is a question that you address and raise, that in the American hand, uh, and I'm not going to summarize it because everyone needs to buy the book, yes. uh, but in uh, chapter three, the American hand, one of the long-term strengths that Elliot talks about is if you actually do a comparative analysis of where demographic trends are going for the United States vis-a-vis -vis our major competitors, with immigration helping to drive that for us. 
the point that I would uh, quibble in the book that I think is an additional, maybe, maybe it's a semantic or a definitional difference, is grand strategy, of course, takes a long-term view that looks at trends but is rooted uh, in a belief, at least the way that I have always thought about it, that individuals matter and matter enormously. And the courses and the decisions and the choices that they make or don't make have enormous implications at the political level. Uh, and I think uh, in the book, you had said that grand strategy is rooted in the belief that leaders don't matter. Well, I don't know that I said that. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, if, if, I said, if I said it, I don't believe it. Maybe I just dropped uh, the word on purpose there. Yeah, no, I, that, uh, I don't think I said that. I, I, I think a lot of what passes for so-called um, international relations realism assumes that leaders don't matter. And I think a lot of the, the uh, kind of broad arguments for American retrenchment effectively are saying it doesn't really make a difference what an indiv individual leader decides to do. I mean, I think that is, for example, it's very true of, uh, of Pinker. I mean, I think it is very hard for an individual leader to really fundamentally alter um, the assumptions on which, say, American foreign policy acts. And, and in a way, we've got a test case, because it's clear Trump has no commitment whatsoever to the sorts of stuff we believe in. And yet, one way or another, he finds himself surrounded by people who do share that commitment. I, Mattis basically believes this. I think Tillerson believes it. H.R. McMaster uh, believes it. John Kelly, to the extent that he's an important player in this, probably believes it. Mike Pence, I think, believes it. So it's a really interesting test case about how much room there is, even for the American president, who is a very powerful, you know, our system gives them an enormous amount of power how much room does he really have to change fundamental assumptions? So we're, we're living in, in many respects, a very interesting political science field right. experiment. I'm going to insist now that we give the audience a little bit of a chance. Sorry. Uh, right here, yes? Thanks. I'm Peter Shetley, retired State Department Foreign Service. And my question is American public opinion. A new, any grand strategy that the Trump administration proposes or a future administration is going to need popular support to be effective. But we're so split, we're so polarized, we're so divided, we don't even agree on the facts anymore. How is this administration going to get public support for whatever its, its grand strategy might be? Let me just say a couple of things on that. First, you know, if you look at the Pew or the Gallup polling, the basic consensus on the American role in the world has not changed all that much. I mean, it fluctuates a bit up and down, depending on various things, but it, it's still basically there. Of course, that, you can never measure the intensity with, peop with which people hold these views. So that would be point one. Point two, I would actually fault both the administration that I served in, uh, the president I served, uh, and President Obama for not realizing that a very important part of their job had to be selling or you know, explaining, making the case for the American role in the world to the American people. It's a mistake to think of, of public opinion as something you simply react to as, to something, as opposed to something you try to shape. Third thing I would say is the, the biggest challenge that uh, this administration will have with respect to public opinion, I believe, will be that a time will come when the president has to speak from the Oval Office and the American people have to give him the benefit of the doubt. 
that he knows what he's doing. He sees things I don't see. You know, he's making the best possible decision, you know, for what's good for the United States. This president will have to expect that a majority of the American people will not believe him simply because he's the guy saying it. And that's, that is a real problem, and that's why I think whatever the tactical advantage is of denouncing the press and alternative facts and all that sort of stuff, and I understand there are tactical advantages there, the, the larger problem will be when he really needs people like me to give him the benefit of the doubt and just average people to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I know I won't, and I bet you a majority of the American people won't. All right, let's see over here. Sir. Hi, I'm Ken Masugi, a Mikado Trump supporter. Uh, off with their heads. Uh, actually, Elliot, I think in your last response, you, I think, clarified your own uh, expressed confusion about Trump's foreign policy and why does he surround himself with all these military types who uh, would be terrific in a war-fighting situation, and yet he says he's an isolationist. Well, I don't think he's an isolationist. I think what he wants is a foreign policy based on the consent of the governed, our basic constitutional principle. And he never articulates it in that way, but his practice these rallies, uh, for example, are a way of generating consent for policies that were never argued for uh, by either Bush or Obama. I guess my view of, I'll yield to my uh, colleagues on this, but uh, I'm always very suspicious of people who try to tell me what is the deeper thinking that's going on inside uh, Donald Trump's head. I go by what he says, and I go by... Uh, the, the opinions that he changes, but more importantly, I go by the things that he said. And I think it's very hard to listen to the things that he says and to think that he believes in the kinds of things that we believe and, you know, uh, and that he believes, say, in our alliance structure as something that's innately valuable as opposed to a bunch of bad deals. So I would maybe tie the last two questions together. And I'm just one, one response here. I mean, I, I think that Donald Trump absolutely believes that he is trying to enunciate a foreign policy that's based on the consent of the governed, but a significant part of the foreign policy is based on lies. It's based on a lie that trade is primarily responsible for the hollowing out of manufacturing. Any economist can tell you that's not true. It's based on a lie that American alliances are zero-sum propositions in which we pay all the costs and our allies reap all the benefits. Anyone who studies this can tell you it's not true. There are absolutely problems with the way that American foreign policy works today, with the way the international system works today. It's absolutely fair to say that we should try to redistribute the way that burdens are shared. But that has to start from an honest analysis of the problem, and I have not seen that from this administration. With respect to uh, the question from over here about U.S. public opinion, I, I think there are, uh, there are a couple of cautions I would take in reading too much into the current state of public opinion. So, so one is that, yes, polarization is, by any statistical measure, historically more severe today than it has been in decades. But, but it's a mistake to think that polarization is not something that we've had to deal with before and that we haven't been able to come up with very constructive foreign policies at times of polarization. We often forget that the era of bipartisanship in American foreign policy 
lasted all the way from about 1947 to 1949. Uh, and after that was a time of severe partisanship and, and polarization. And yet we look back on this period as a golden age in American foreign policy. And so that's useful just from perspective. With respect to the state of public opinion today, I think there are two ways of reading the 2016 election and the current state of American public opinion. One is that the American people have fundamentally gotten tired of bearing the burdens of American globalism. And, and the major piece of support for this uh, assertion is the fact that Donald Trump is president. Because at every previous juncture in which a major party candidate has advocated significantly breaking with aspects of American globalism, he has been turned back at the polls, whether that was Pat Buchanan or McGovern or Robert Taft. So something new is happening today. At the same time, the dynamics that Elliot talked about are there. The opinion polls do not show dramatic swings in what American people, the American people think about the world. The candidate who got the most popular votes in this election espouses a view of American foreign policy that shares, I think, all of the assumptions that we've been talking about. And so something clearly is happening with respect to American public opinion, but I don't think we know quite what it is or how severe the change is quite yet. Can I uh, just add one thing? Uh, what, what you can each do is now add one thing as long as it's for no longer than a minute, because <laughs> we are coming to the end. So make it quick, Charlie. Uh, look, I am not a Twitter wizard um, or anything. Uh, I'm not even on it. So you should throw out this comment before you even digest it. However, uh, I think that there's something, uh, traditionally if you look at where presidents have the ability to govern and in fact build up a legislative momentum behind them, it's when they can grow and build their legislative majorities. And what I have seen on both parties, but we'll talk about the president, is a absolutely going out to rally the base. That is a steady base that seems to not want to grow it beyond that base. Now, I can say the same thing for the other party. I tend to think that the best moment of Hillary Clinton's run happened when she sent Bill Clinton out to the Rust Belt, uh, if you remember this, in April, May. Uh, and he did what Bill Clinton does. And he stood up there for like two hours and said, if I'm first laddie, I'll do nothing but come out to the Rust Belt. Whether or not he would have is something else. Uh, but this idea that, you know, my wife says all the time that when I listen to the news, I feel bad. When I go on Facebook, I feel horrible. <laughs> right? Because we hear the same things by people that we agree with. And there is, and this is why I think this book that Ellie's written is so valuable, because that first chapter really is honest. Uh, I mean, I took it as a very honest intellectual endeavor that there are strong or not so strong arguments, deeply held, deeply reasoned, about why America should not do what it has done. Let's take those on as opposed to just say to ourselves, we agree with what we agree with. All right, we've got Elliot. Do you want to give one final closing quick remark, and then we will yeah. break, and we can all get back to our lives? I, th I think w with regard to the uh, Trump administration, the, the illuminating moment will not be when uh, he publishes a foreign policy white paper on either the, you know, the grand strategy of, the, of uh, Donald Trump or the foreign policy of the administration, uh, because I, I think there'll be incoherence. Uh, the... the the, the moment will be when there's a crisis, when there's a serious, a really serious crisis. I don't mean a raid that goes awry. 
I mean something big, uh, which is quite likely to happen, given what the world is. And how he reacts to it, how the people around him react to it. And I think actually a lot will flow from that to include the domestic politics of foreign policy. All right. Well, listen, thanks to the panel. Thanks to the audience. It's been a great event. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Alex.